today, as we are preparing for the Thanksgiving season, we had the opportunity yesterday as a church, we had a lot of activity going on, we had a men's breakfast here in the morning, we had followed by a work day, we also had an outreach simultaneously going on um, as we were helping out the Kendall County Food Pantry and helping uh, fill some bags uh, filled with food that are going out to families that are less fortunate during the Thanksgiving or for the Thanksgiving holiday. I think we prepared about 450. It was Village Bible Church as a whole, had a lot from the Sugar Grove campus. But as we finished, we got done that the director, who's a volunteer, wanted to talk, wish to speak to us. And she gathered us all together, and she, she started telling us just about what they do there. And th- again, this is in Kendall County. But it was just fascinating and sobering to consider just where people are at in the middle of this economy. She, was asked, she asked the question to the group, and she said, what does a person who's hungry look like? And a, and a boy, he said, well, he raised his hand. He was so excited to answer. And he said, well, they, their faces are really thin, and their eyes kind of bulge out, and their, their clothes are tattered. And that sounds like a pretty good answer from someone his age, but she kind of nodded, knowing that there was something different she was looking for. And an older woman spoke up, and she said, they look just like us. She said, yes, they look exactly like us. She said, it's amazing to see with this economy what it's done to different people's households. She said, should I pay rent or should I feed my family? And that's a question that many homes are being confronted with right now. She said, used to, a few years ago, when gas would fluctuate seven cents a gallon, it didn't mean that much. I mean, it was... It was uncomfortable, but it didn't mean that much. But now, where families are at, that's a big deal. It adds up. And there are families that are struggling. And she says, these are the, she was talking to the children, and she said, these are the families that are your classmates. These kids are in your class. These are the kids that forget to bring their lunch a lot. These are the kids that somehow wear the same clothes often. These are the kids that used to be in different sports, and for whatever reason, they can't now. They don't know why, because mom and dad can't afford to pay. I mean, it's a desperate time out there. Families are struggling. I was at Home Depot the other night just getting some paint for our work day, and I was speaking to the woman behind the counter, and I said, well, this is for a church. And she said, oh, she she mentioned she was a, a pastor's daughter. And that stimulated, started a conversation, and we just started speaking, and and I said, yeah, it's just such a tough time right now. And she goes, well, tell me about it. My, she's in her 50s. She goes, my husband lost his job nine months ago. He hasn't been able to find anything since. I'm working three jobs right now. We have a son that has Down syndrome. And, and she goes, it's just extremely tough uh, right now for us as a family. And I said, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are going through the same thing. Maybe you're going through that right now. You feel that economic crunch. Perhaps the debt has piled up so high, you don't know where else you're going to be able to find the money just to make payment for your bills. Perhaps you might be going through a difficult time right now. You might be wondering if you're going to lose your job. Or maybe you just got the medical report that said it's cancer, or it came back that it's, it's, you don't have long to live. Or maybe right now you're in a relational issue. Maybe you're, you've, you're, you're in a marriage that the spouse just came home and said, I'm done, it's over. Maybe you're dealing with a wayward child or a child that's been diagnosed with major problems and issues. Many of us are in that boat right now. It's desperate times. 
I mean, seeing what people will do just to make money or just to make their ends meet. I mean, as Henry David Thoreau once said, men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think there's a lot of desperate people out there. But you know, even in the most desperate times, when hope seems lost, when time is at its bleakest, that's when Jesus shines brightest. We come to Jesus in desperate times. And God, He doesn't cast us out. He's there. Never present help in time of need. So if you're going through a desperate time today and you need God's help, then this message is for you. As we look within this passage today, we're going to see two episodes that occur in Jesus' life. We're going to be going through a lot of verses. I'm going to spend a lot of time in just the first point trying to explain that. Then we'll have some smaller action points through there. But bear with me as we examine these episodes and as we look into different people's lives that these are individuals that are come to Jesus, they're desperate. They're at the end of themselves. They're hurting. They're hopeless. They're helpless. And that's when they come to the Savior. Jesus does only what Jesus can do. So please, if you're not with me already to the book of Mark chapter 1, we're going to be reading from verse 40 through chapter 2, verse 12. And uh, I would encourage you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand as God's Word's being read. Be going from verse 40 through 2.12. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in, the de- in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence today. Lord, as desperate people, there are many many here today within our fellowship that are in a facing a desperate situation right now, Lord, I pray that you might show yourself to be God in their life, the God of hope, the God that loves them, that loves us. Lord, even as a church, we're going through a, different, a difficult time. 
dealing with all the different finances that have affected the economy has affected us too. Lord, help us to be as a, a body of believers, to be faithful with everything you've entrusted to our care, that your name might receive glory through us. And Lord, take the little that we give back to you in our lives and make it much for the honor, praise, and glory of your, your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In desperate times, you know, it's, sometimes it's very difficult for God to get our attention. You know that? Have you ever wondered that in your life? I mean, we know how easily we can be confident in and of ourselves, how proud we can get, and how, how proud we are in that when we experience pain, suddenly God owes us something. Suddenly we start blaming God. God, why did you do this to me? Why did, why did you make this happen? Why did, why did this? We start asking ourselves these questions. But do you know, sometimes in those moments of greatest affliction, it's, it's in those moments that God uses to get our attention because we're too deaf and dumb to listen any other way. We need a big, giant wake-up call. I'm reminded of the quote by C.S. Lewis when he said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think many of us right now in, in our fellowship are, are going through a very difficult time. And today we're going to look at these two episodes of Jesus' life where we see desperation, people that have experienced pain, people at the end of themselves, and they're coming to Jesus. And it's amazing to me how bad things must get before we seek God's help. We don't know if these two men, which we're about to see, had ever cried out to God before, but we can see that they're doing it here. Now, they're seeking God's help. And the first one, that first point that I'd like us to, to, to draw out is this, is that when we, when we seek God's help, it means coming to Him in our worst situations. Coming to Him in our worst situations. Did you know that you can come to God in your worst situation? Isn't that great? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what life you've led, that you can come to God at the worst part of your situation. That's, that's an amazing thing to think about. That God is there for us. And He's there not only in the worst situations, but He's there in our affliction, in the midst of our affliction. Now we have two people within our passage today that are afflicted in ways that we can't possibly comprehend in our day and age. The first person we meet is a leper. Now, this leper that we see, I mean, the terminology used for a leper can be used for a variety of skin conditions. But one thing is for sure is the Bible actually talks, especially in the Old Testament, about leprosy. Now, leprosy was horrific. I want to throw some photos up here to show you the effect of it. Here we go. You're seeing what begins to happen. Let me explain. The whole appearance of the face has changed. It was... It was Contracted, or, uh, contracted through social contact. And it was a, a death sentence if you got leprosy. Not only was it just a death sentence to you physically. I mean, there was no doctors. There wasn't any, anything that you could do for it. Like today, even when we hear about cancer, we understand that there's chemotherapy, there's radiation, there's different treatments. Leprosy, there was no hope. If you got it, you were done. It was over. And not only was it over for you physically, it was over for you socially. Because as soon as your family members found out, your friends, they wouldn't touch you. They, you couldn't, they wouldn't come anywhere near you because for them, they would contract it. And even Jewish law 
required people with leprosy to go outside of the greater community. So you couldn't, you couldn't ever experience a hug again. Imagine that. You couldn't experience the embrace of your spouse or your loved one or your child. No one wanted to touch you, not even a handshake. And not only that, but anytime you came within the community, you had to yell, unclean, walking through, to warn everybody. And if you didn't, they would pick up stones because they would notice your condition immediately and they would start throwing them at you to get you out of the community. I mean, imagine that for a moment. Just the, the alienation, the humiliation, the frustration, the isolation that people were, were experiencing in that moment in time. I mean, it was horrific. William Barclay describes the change that happened to the body. He says, the whole appearance of the face has changed, and you can see that within the picture that we have today, till the man loses his appearance and looks, as the ancients said, like a lion or a satyr. The nodules grow larger and larger. They ulcerate, becoming staring. The voice becomes hoarse, and the breath wheezes because of the ulceration of the vocal cords. The hands and the feet always ulcerate. Slowly, the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growth. Fingers would fall off. Toes would fall off. Different appendages would fall off. The sufferer becomes utterly repulsive. And the average course of the disease is nine years. Can you imagine that? Nine years of slowly going through a death sentence without family and friends there to help you. I can't imagine how horrific that would have been. It ends in mental decay, coma, and ultimately death. He's repulsive to himself and to others. And yet Jesus interacts with him. Now, we're going to be weaving these two different episodes together. So we're not just looking at the leper, we're looking at the paralytic. That's what I'd like to look at the the second episode in chapter 2. Look at verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum, Capernaum, this is his home base. We talked about this a little bit last week. But Jesus sets Capernaum, which is a town of about 1,500 people. It's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. It is a, a port town, a fishing village. Jesus has that become his home base. And he had just been there. He had taught in the synagogue. He had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of an illness. And then he healed different individuals that, were, that had been... Um, that were suffering with sickness or had been demon-possessed. And he frees them. And then he leaves and he goes on to preach in other different locations. And then he comes back to Capernaum after some days. And many were, he was at home, which means he's at Peter's house and he is teaching the word of God to these people. But everybody wants a piece of Jesus. So they're all there. They're crowded in the house. You know, it was beyond max capacity. And these guys come in with their their buddy, four friends, carrying their friend who was a paralytic. Now, a paralytic was almost as bad as being a leper in that if you were paralyzed, there there wasn't like the things that we have today, there uh, weren't any automated wheelchairs. There weren't any any handicap accessible entrances. There wasn't any of that during this period of time. And a paralytic was forced just to lay out on a mat all day long and just beg. For food, money, scraps. And we don't know how paralyzed he was. I mean, obviously he couldn't walk. We don't know if he was a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. But he is definitely paralyzed. He is definitely afflicted. And it's amazing to see his friends coming alongside him and taking him to Jesus. And then Jesus does the remarkable and heals him. Now, it's interesting to note that this 
paralytic is carried to Jesus in a pretty amazing way, but we'll get to that soon. The first thing that Jesus says to him is not, you are healed, get up and walk. Look at that. He doesn't say that, which is very surprising. That's the first thing that I would expect him to say. He says something incredible that I, it took me years to figure out why. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, it's interesting to note, and we often overlook this, is that there are sometimes physical things that affect us spiritually, and then there are spiritual things that affect us physically. Now, let me explain that. If you have, for instance, uh, a growth on, in part of your brain, it's going to affect how you perceive and understand things. Or maybe you might have dementia or uh, Alzheimer's. We all know loved ones that have gone through that. And their, their mental state, they could have been a godly uh, Christian and love the Lord. And then with that deterioration of their mental faculties, you hear them uttering words you've never heard them utter in their life. Now, that's a, a physical ailment that has affected them spiritually. And we have to be, that needs medication, that needs doctors, that needs those type of things. But then there are other instances where we have spiritual problems that affect us physically. The book of 1 Corinthians 11 first talks about this. When Paul is admonishing the Corinthians on how they were to observe communion, it's a very serious matter to partake of the Lord's Supper. And he says, if you take it in an unworthy manner, you're inviting, in essence, God's judgment on your life. He says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, in verse 29. So he's saying there that there is a spiritual root to your physical condition. James chapter 5 talks about that. He says, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church to come and anoint him with oil. And then he says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, it's amazing here that he's, James is even saying that the physical illness that this person has that brings them near death might have a spiritual root. That's why he says if. He's not for sure, but if. Now, we don't know, but here it appears in this man's instance, in his paralysis, that it's because of something that he has done that is sinful. That's why Jesus says to him, first of all, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is speak to him in the, in the midst of his sickness in a very powerful way. And it's amazing to, to think about that God is there in the midst of our affliction with us. I had the privilege of speaking to a man yesterday. I was talking to him about Christ. He was a man who had uh, his ex- been familiar with Christianity, but he has a, an area of his life in just which he is holding on to sin. Very smart man. And uh, we were going back and forth, and he was wanting to know about the problem of evil in the world. And he says, why did my friend die in a car accident? Why did this person just die suddenly in the, the apex of life? I want to know why God, if he's so good, allows evil to happen. It's a great question. I said, well, we're going to be able to talk about that in the next few weeks. We've scheduled a few more meetings to work through some of these questions. But I said this, God is not immune or deaf to our suffering. As a matter of fact, the difference between Christianity and every other faith is that God himself enters into human suffering. That's a pretty amazing thing. I said, God is not uh, is aloof of the pain that we feel. He became intimately associated with it by identifying with us and taking our affirmities upon himself. 
That He came to live amongst us by, by loving us and, and then taking our sickness, our suffering, and our sins upon Himself and suffering Himself for us. That's pretty amazing to think about. I mean, you don't see that in the Islamic God. Allah doesn't do that. You don't see that in the Hindu concept, not of God, because there's, it's many different gods. Or Buddha, where you have the, uh, more of a, a philosophical, philosophical system where there is no suffering. It's just the craving of desire that we have to be rid of. But we all understand all too well that there is suffering that we experience in life. And Jesus knew it, choosing to identify with us by suffering with us in the midst of our afflictions. He was intimately associated with it all. And God shows through His Word that He is there for us in our afflictions and even the worst ones. See, we can, we can come to God when we're hurting. These aren't in your notes, but you can write them down. Write it in, in a pencil on the side of your notes there. You can come to God when you're hurting. It doesn't matter if it's caused by your sin or if someone hurt you. you can, someone, you've, you've done the action or the action has happened to you. You can come to God when you're hurting. And not only that, you can come to God when you're feeling helpless. That's what you see with the paralytic. That's what you see with the leper. And you can come to God when you're hopeless. That's what these two men were. Hurting, alienated, helpless and hopeless. For After all, where could a leper go for cleansing? Where could the paralytic go to walk again? They weren't, there weren't wheelchairs. Doctors can do some amazing things now. But they still can't fix that. Only God can. Now, as we're thinking about them, is before we get more into the details of their life, I want us to pause for a moment. I want to ask a question to us all. What are we going through right now? I mean, do you feel, maybe you feel like an outcast. You may not be a leper with a skin disease that way, but you might feel an outcast from your family. Maybe you feel paralyzed because of some sin in your life. What is it you're going through? I can guarantee you that, that Jesus is not removed from your situation, but He's intimately involved in it. He comes to us, taking our pains upon Himself. He experiences them. and all, He experienced all of our, our sins in its fullness on the cross. He took our sicknesses. He experienced suffering. What other God in history would do that? None. He wasn't above or beyond it, but loved us so much that He experienced it for us. Thinking of this God who loves us so much that He goes through life with us, then it should cause us to reconsider how we approach God. We don't approach God flippantly. He is God. We are not. He is in heaven and we are earth. on earth. Therefore, let our words be few. So as we look at these two episodes, we can see that our coming to Him also involves our approach. How do we approach God? And think about that. How do we approach God? I, I, I can't fathom that. I, I, I have a hard time putting into words what it means to approach God. I mean, I've met some interesting people in my life. I've met celebrities, and, and it's, you get a little bit nervous. And, but God is on a whole other, it's a whole other playing field. I mean, how do, you, how do you interact with God? The one who made you, the one who knows your thoughts, the one that, the one that knows every sin you've ever done. How do you approach God? Well, I think we can see here a very fascinating approach that the leper takes. I'd like to look at the leper for a moment. The first thing that he does in verse 40, came to him imploring him and kneeling, said to him, 
If you will, you can make me clean. Well, first of all, we can see his posture. That's not in your notes either. It's his posture. I just want you to write that down. Notice his, his posture. He comes humbly. He comes before him and kneels. He's not saying unclean, by the way. He's coming to Jesus and and kneels before him. He recognizes that Jesus is the only one that can help him in in his situation. And look at his, his, not just his posture, but his pleas, his request. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. He knew that Jesus could heal him. He doesn't come demanding. He came in faith, but he came knowing that God may not heal his skin or his disease. See, sometimes God heals and other times He doesn't. We don't know exactly why He heals some and not others. I do know this. Whatever way that God does it is best. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you are familiar with her. She's in her 60s now, but when uh, she's a quadriplegic, she ended up becoming a quadriplegic at the age of 17 years old. Dumped off, jumped off a diving board in Chesapeake Bay and it was too shallow, it severed her vertebrae, and she became a quadriplegic at 17 years of age. Her whole life is in front of her. She goes through a period of depression for a few different years, asking God the question as she's just laying in bed, saying, God, why can't you, you can heal me, why don't you heal me? And then she, she began to see that maybe God had a bigger purpose than just healing her. And then God used her in the midst of her affliction to help other people. And now she's been an inspiration to not just thousands, but millions. And she's traveled all over the world, even delivering wheelchairs to those in other countries that don't have access to them. See, God wanted to be glorified in her suffering. We have to remember that, that God brings suffering into our life to accomplish something bigger than we can imagine. We're not to be exempt from suffering. As Christians, we're to be intimately associated with it, just as Jesus himself was, and yet still having joy in the midst of it. Notice we don't only just see his plea in his coming to Jesus saying, if you will, you can make me clean. We see a man of great faith. And we see that faith also exhibited at the four young men who bring the paralytic to Jesus. Notice their persistence. This isn't your notes either, but notice their persistence. In verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people remember the healing that they had experienced or other family members and friends had experienced the several days before. It says many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door. They couldn't even see through the door. It was so packed. whole town was there. And he was preaching the word to them. That was Jesus' supreme task, is preaching the good news, the gospel. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near. Now, what would most of us do if we noticed we couldn't get in? We're helping somebody in need. We couldn't get in. We'd say, oh, better luck next time. Man, that stinks. Sorry. No. These guys loved their friend. And they, they, there's a st- in, in uh, Jewish homes, especially in the Middle East, there's an outward stairwell that goes up to the, the roof of the house, which is considered to be like another room um, where people would go to uh, different times of fellowship uh, or, or even time of prayer. We see that with Peter. Uh, it was a, a, sometimes a, uh, as a, just like it served as an extra room. And the roof itself was made of wooden beams covered with thatch and compacted earth. And some homes had clay tiles laid under the thatch be- between the beams. Now these fragile roofs had to be replaced every fall to get ready for winter rains, and they were easily repaired. 
So this means these, these, the four industrious friends could break the roof apart with their bare hands. And what's impressive is not their act of breaking the roof. What's impressive is Jesus wasn't the least annoyed by their interruption. In fact, he viewed their persistence as faith and rewarded them for it. Imagine that for a moment, that you're in a house, like today, and next thing you know, you hear a circular saw going through the roof. Drywall starts falling around you. I, I don't think you're going to be going, wow, that's amazing faith. You're saying, you're nuts! I mean, can you imagine what these individuals were experiencing as they're seeing the roof come in? And Jesus rewards them as they lower their friend down before him. It was their persistence in coming to God. They wouldn't, their faith wouldn't acquiesce. It wouldn't be satisfied. See, we are to come to God persistently. Many of us just throw out one request and we're done. God wants us to continue to come to him, pouring out our hearts before him. I think of Augustine, amazing theologian in church history. Matter of fact, one of the most influential theologians in church history. Christianity today, the way that it looks today, is, a, is due in part because of his bold stances for the gospel. And what I love about this guy in church history is not that he had a halo. I mean, you see some of these figures in church history, and you wondered if, the, if you've wondered if they've ever done anything bad or they've ever struggled with sin. And Augustine comes on the, the scene, and this guy I can relate to. He writes his story in what is called the Confessions, and he is blatantly open with all the sins that he's ever done. I mean, he lays it on the line. And I remember reading it going, finally, someone that's just willing to lay it on the table. They don't pretend to play games. They're not showing themselves to be holier than thou. He says, this is where I've been, but yet God has transformed me and he can transform you. And to give you an idea of his life, between the age of 16 to 33, he lived a life of horrible sexual immorality. See, both his parents were aware that he was floundering in the broiling sea of fornication, as Augustine writes, but each responded differently. His father, who his name is Patricius, who seems to have also been entangled in extramarital affairs in himself, by the way, this is in the th- late, late 300s, he, he uh, saw, his, he was amused at his son's budding sexual interests, and the prospect of grandchildren, legitimate or otherwise, appealed to Patricius. Monica, his mother, on the other hand, was caught in a dilemma. She did not suggest marriage for a quelling of the sexual fires because she feared that a hurried marriage would hinder her gifted son's career opportunities. At the same time, she earnestly warned him about his lack of sexual restraint, saying, above all, do not seduce any man's wife. I mean, does this not sound like it happened in today's day and age? And then, as an 18-year-old student at Carthage, he goes off to college... Augustine reveled in promiscuity. Sex had become an obsession for him. From a perverted act of will, he wrote, desire had grown, and when desire is given satisfaction, habit is forged. And when habit passes unresisted, a compulsive urge sets in. He was addicted. Now, this sounds just like today. After a year of promiscuity in that university city, Augustine settled down with a mistress. Although he never revealed her name, he remained with her for more than a decade. She bore him a son named Adiodatus. The young scholar had become a professor of rhetoric in Milan. He'd worked his way up the professional ranks. His ever-persistent mother, though, persuaded him to send his unnamed mistress away so that he might acquire the hand of a high-society Milanese girl. Now, he grows up in Carthage, which is in, like, Libya, northern Africa. He goes all the way up to Milan, Italy, for his education, and he's corresponding with his mother. 
Now, part of the arrangement was that Augustine had to remain chaste for two years. That is, until the girl reached marriageable age. I think she was around 10 at the time. But his sexual passions prevented him from keeping his part of the bargain. Not long after sending away the mother of Adiodatus, he took another mistress. He said, I thought it should be too miserable, he lamented, unless folded in a female arms. Now, he's the same guy, by the way, who said, God, give me chastity, just not yet. Fortunately, God seemed to have given Monica a remarkable degree of persistence that she kept praying for him. She refused to let him go. Her husband dies, and then she travels from northern Africa and follows her son to Milan, and she will not quit praying for her son and telling him about Jesus. I mean, this is an amazing woman. Ladies, if you're in a, in a situation where you have a wayward son or daughter, follow the example of Monica. She continues to pray. Matter of fact, she talks to the, the bishop who was the leader of the church in Milan, a guy by the name of Ambrose. And she kept praying for him and telling him the condition of her son. And Augustine tells us that she wept more for his spiritual death than most mothers weep for the bodily death of their children. For she saw that I was dead, this is what he says, by that faith and spirit which she had from you. And you heard her, O Lord. He also relates how Ambrose once turned away Monica's plea that he have a talk with Augustine with this comment. She goes, please go talk to my son. Please go talk to my son. He says to her, go your way and God will bless you. For it is not possible that the son of these tears should perish. In other words, your prayer is going to be answered in a very powerful way. She accepted the answer, says Augustine, as though it were a voice from heaven. And Augustine came to faith at the age of 33, was baptized by Ambrose, went on to become one of the greatest theologians in church history. He went from promiscuity to chastity to celibacy and became one of the greatest theologians that Christianity has ever known. Pretty amazing that it was the persistence of his mother and her prayers coming to the Lord in faith, saying, save my son, save my son, save my son. See, that's what we see with these individuals that are coming and bringing their friend to Jesus. Persistence. They're not going to be stopped just by the crowd. They're like, let's get creative here. Let's get creative. Let's go to the roof. I can see their friends. Let's do this thing. They take him to the roof. They lower him down. And then they experience something that is pretty unimaginable. Jesus healed him. Now, the friends of the paralytic came persistently in their approach, but notices, notice in Jesus' interaction with the leper, his attitude. His attitude. And I mean the leper's attitude. See, the, the leper approached him with the right posture, and he had a pretty amazing plea there, but he comes whole, humbly. He has the right perspective. He says, if you will, or if you will. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing for him to say to Jesus. He says, if you are willing, or if you will, you can make me clean. He came humble. He came hopeful. And we look at the other friends that came with the paralytic. They came helpful. They came ready to help someone to get to faith. So we have to have the right attitude in our approach to the Savior. It's a pretty amazing thing when we see these friends coming alongside them. And this is where the importance of Christian community comes in. Because we need one another. Just as these friends came bringing their friend, we're to come alongside other people bringing them to Jesus. Are you doing that right now? Are we doing that as a body of believers? 
Are you coming alongside someone in your family or friends or are we as a church looking for opportunities to come alongside different individuals and bring them to the Savior? I mean, it's, it's so essential to be in Christian community, but the, the interesting thing here is if these four guys weren't in relationship with the paralytic, they never would have brought him to Jesus. Which means that we have to be in community sharing the intimate details of our life, our struggles, our sins, our pains, our troubles, our trials, our tribulations. Now that's hard to do on a Sunday morning. That's why we, we really push small groups. That's the heart, one of the heartbeats of who we are. is to be intimately sharing the details of our life with other individuals. To be in Christian community. But these guys came alongside him and they were bringing him to Jesus. They had the right attitude. We need one another. You can't help someone who's going through a dark time if you haven't spent enough time getting to know them in Christian community. This is where it is so important for us to be connected with one another. We truly get to know one another, share life together, and then press on forward to Christ-likeness. Now, when we come to God with all of our ailments and the right attitude and our afflictions, we will find this, a willing Savior. A willing Savior. Notice verse 40, if you will, for a moment. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now, the word there for pity is actually, that's in the, the, the majority of the manuscripts that's there. But the actual, in the earliest manuscripts, it's a term for anger. It's not pity. He's angered, not at the fact that this man is coming to him, but just at the human condition and seeing how bad this guy had become and what he had suffered, the effects of sin. Because all sickness, ultimately, and suffering comes because of the effects of sin, original sin specifically. So we see that he is suffering the debilitating effects of sin, and Jesus is angered just at what sin does to a person. And then he does the unimaginable. This guy who had been to the outset of the community, who couldn't have any type of relationship with anyone, no one had touched him for years, Jesus does the unbelievable. What's he do? He touches him. I mean, can you imagine the last time that this person felt the touch of a, of a person? Jesus is, reaches, out his, reaches out his hand and touches him and says, I am willing. Be clean. You know, God is willing to cleanse you of your sin. There's, he's willing to touch you in the midst of your life, no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what you find yourself doing, no matter what the past, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what it is, God is willing to reach out and touch you. No one is beyond the grace of God. Not one single person in this room. I don't care if you've been in prison. I don't care if you have been a rapist, a murderer, an adulterer. I don't care. Because God's grace is so much bigger. And if you think that your sin is greater than the grace of God, then you need to reconsider the cross and what happened there. God is in the business of transforming lives. God is in the business of reaching in and touching the people that have gone through the worst experiences imaginable and touching them in the midst of it. He's willing to cleanse us. So I don't care what it is you've done. Where have you been and whose arms you've been in and what situation you find yourself? I don't care if you're a thief. I don't care if, if you've been a murderer. I don't care if you've been an adulterer or a fornicator or a blasphemer. Or, it doesn't matter. 
If you've been a drunk, a drug addict, and you've done some of the most horrible things in those states, God can forgive you. He does. He forgives, he forgives everyone, even the worst of society. The worst that we wouldn't even touch. Who are the lepers in our society that we don't want to be around, that when we see their, their face, we go the other way? Who are they? I know in my own life, there's some in my, my life. I mean, I have small children. And what do I get nervous about? Child molesters. You know, God loves even child molesters. That's an, that's an amazing thought. God loves even them. That's an amazing thought to think about. God's love extends to the worst of the worst. And not only does He cleanse us, and, he, and that's what He also does with the paralytic, because He says, He talks about His sins. He says, Your sins are forgiven. He's cleansing him as well. But he's a Savior who's willing to connect with us. He's a Savior that's willing to cleanse us. And he's a Savior that is willing to change us. See, not only did he cleanse the leper, but he changed him. So much that this guy that was, that was isolated now is brought back in to the family to be celebrated. I mean, imagine that. You saw the pictures of the guy who's got even nubs on his feet. Imagine this guy now having new toes and new hands. Couldn't grip anything. Maybe his, he was even, I mean, we don't know the figures and the deformities in his face, but all that's restored again. And imagine his excitement. He's looking at his hands. I've got five fingers again. <laughs> Can't imagine the jubilation that he was experiencing. Because see, Jesus didn't just heal him physically, but he transformed him and brought him back into the community, as it were. And he does the same thing with the paralytic. He says, your sins are forgiven, and he, he changes him, changes his status. No longer was this guy going to be dependent upon every single person that came by for, for handouts. He could be able to work again. He is changed in a pretty remarkable way. That's what God does God is in the business of changing lives. His grace is seismic in how it changes. He cleanses us, takes us from the darkest and deepest situations, and makes us trophies of grace. Now Jesus was showing that if he could make the paralyzed man walk, then he could also surely forgive sin. See, God changes us in a pretty amazing way. And seeking God's help, it also involves this, discovering a wonderful salvation. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2 there for a moment with me, would you? Jesus, and when Jesus saw their faith, came to him in faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Now, the scribes were those who considered, uh, they, they made their living, in other, in other words, being teachers and writers of the law. They spent all their day learning the law. And they understood, wait a minute, only God alone can forgive sin. How can you, you can't do that. You're blaspheming. And the, and the penalty, by the way, for blasphe blaspheming was death. They'd take you outside and they would stone you with stones, which was a pretty amazing thing. But then Jesus perceives it in their hearts. In verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, which they would never know that he could, if he could actually forgive sins, because that was an internal thing, that was a spiritual thing. Jesus could say it, but it didn't mean it was so. But then Jesus does the remarkable. 
He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that if I have the ability to heal this person, then I have the ability to forgive sins, which is even bigger. I mean, he was making a bold claim at being God there. That's an amazing thing. Jesus is saying, if you think that just saying the spiritual isn't that big of a deal, I'm going to show you the physical that's going to prove the spiritual. That I have the power over suffering and sickness in Satan. That's a pretty amazing thing. And then, you know, it's interesting, later on, we read in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, if I remember right, maybe chapter 10, where Jesus denounces Capernaum. And he says, woe to you, Capernaum. If the miracles had been performed in in Tyre and Sidon, then the people would have repented. But you didn't. In other words, these people became addicted to the supernatural and looking for the miraculous. They wanted the experience. I mean, how many of us want that? We want to see that healing all the time. We want to to experience that, that supernatural that's going on. But here, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's amazing. But what's even more amazing is that I'm going to wipe away and forgive your sins. And he goes on to say, even in the book of Luke chapter 11, if I remember right, he says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's even more amazing that he is offering us a wonderful salvation. Only God can cleanse your sins. Did you know that? I mean, you might have a sickness today and we can go to the doctor and the doctor can help us in our sickness. Not always, but most often than not, more often than not, when we go to the doctor, we can go through medical tests, we can go through the technology, we can experience all these wonderful new equipment of different things, and man can heal us, but man can't forgive sins. No one can forgive your sins but Jesus alone. A priest can't forgive your sins. He can't pay the price for your sins. Only Jesus can pay the price for your sin. There's nothing that you can do to pay back God to forget forgiveness for your sins. Did you realize that? But yet people try it all the time. They try to pay God back. You can't do it. You can't pay the price that is required for your sins. It is impossible. That's why when we come to Jesus looking for help, we're not just going to find a willing Savior. We're finding a wonderful salvation that is far beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. That we could have a relationship with Almighty God. Do we not get excited about that? I hope you do, because I sure do, because God's salvation is absolutely wonderful. That's this, this amazing interchange. This salvation involves something that's beyond any man's ability. It involves God's forgiveness. See, Jesus did the miracle which they could see, that they might know that he had the other one that they could not see. And that is a great miracle in itself. Only God can forgive sin. Only God could be the one who could enable the paralytic to walk. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, and this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the one partly, part, uh, one party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses, See, this makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit 
unrivaled by any other character in history. God forgives us, but as He does, He makes us whole. He enables our wholeness. He enables our wholeness. He cleansed the leper, made the paralytic walk, but the physical healing was only part of it. It was to bring them to the knowledge of Him as Savior. Now look at verse 43. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You've made, been made whole. You've been made well. You've been, been, you've been healed in a very powerful way. But he went out in verse 45 and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, I can't blame the guy. I mean, think about it. If you had your fingers growing back, are you going to tell people about it? I mean, you're, you're going to be so excited that even as Jesus is talking, I, he, he's probably like, yep, I'll do that. <laughs> wow. I, it, but he goes off and disobeys Jesus. Now, it's interesting here that about verse 43, both verbs in this birth, verse seem to confirm the reading of being angry. In verse 41, send him away is from the term ekbalo, which is often used of driving out demons. And another word which means with a strong warning. And it's a word that originally meant this. When he says with a strong warning, you know what? the Greek has a really cool meaning. It mean, originally means that he, Jesus, it's like, uh, it means to snort like a horse. Pretty neat. Jesus is angry. He's like, <sighs> I mean, that's, he's, he's mad because he's telling the guy, don't go tell everybody. And the reason he's angry is because he knows that this guy's going to disobey him. And, he, and, and in doing so, it wasn't the guy's intense. He thought he, help, he was helping Jesus' ministry, but he was actually hindering Jesus' ministry. Because now, people were looking at Jesus as an even greater healer. And they wanted him as the healer, not the Savior. And think about all the people, because Jesus now is forced to stay outside of the camp in desolate places that couldn't be healed because of this guy going off when Jesus told him not to. He gave a wrong witness. He was testifying to the healing, not the salvation. So we have to understand that this wonderful salvation also involves not only being cleansed and, or being whole and forgiven, but it means, it means giving a proper witness. Giving a proper witness to Jesus we must be careful in how we testify to others about what He has done in our lives. And what I mean by that is this. Focus on the person of Jesus, not everything else. I've made so many mistakes in my, how I've witnessed to other people about who Jesus is. And, and just to give you an idea, I tried to focus on just getting them to be part of the Christian subculture. I wanted them to listen to Christian radio, watch Christian TV, trying to get them to Jesus through a backdoor approach rather than just confronting them with the person of Christ. I tried to focus on the outward behavior before I did at the heart. I tried to get them to, to, to look at everything else but the person of Jesus. And even I was sitting in a class uh, one time and talking about uh, Islam, and a professor was giving us, who had witnessed to different, many different Muslims over the years, and he said, this is how you should witness to a Muslim. Don't talk about the Quran. Don't talk about the Quran. It's an end. You'll never, you'll never get anywhere. He said, don't talk about anything else. Talk about the person of Jesus Christ. Keep bringing back who Jesus is. Bringing back who Jesus is. Bring it back. It's all about Jesus. It's about focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And then everything else will take care of itself. 
confront them with the reality of who Jesus is. Not all about their behavior. I mean, yes, we want to show them that they're sinners, but show them, show them God's love exemplified within Jesus Christ. So don't talk, don't talk about everything else except who Jesus is. Keep focus on Jesus. Keep telling them about Jesus. Can he do miracles? Yes, but that's not his focus. Jesus wasn't around just to do miracles so he could be watched as this traveling healer. Like we see on TV today, these guys have the crusades and it's all about healing. That wasn't Jesus' MO. Jesus downplayed it to focus on the preaching of the word. As we saw last week, even as the people were coming to him and they said, where have you been? After he'd been praying and he'd done all this miraculous stuff, he goes, let's go. It's getting out of hand. All they want is the miracles. I'm not here for that. I'm here to preach the gospel to these other towns too. That's the primary focus. Not the miraculous. Not that the spirits are subjected to him. But that he has enabled our names to be written down in heaven. So, as we come to the end of our time, we have to ask ourselves the question, how desperate are we? I mean, many of us, we have to come to the end of ourselves before we ever come to Jesus in desperate times. How desperate are we? How desperate are we? Are we willing to abandon everything? And even, I mean, think about the leper. He comes to Jesus when there's, there, there, I mean, we don't know if there are other people around or not. But he abandoned all social convention to come at the feet of Jesus. Because he knew that he was the only one that had hope. Or the paralytic and his friends. I mean, they, they went so far to, to tear apart the roof. What are we willing to do? How desperate are we? as a church and as individuals, to see Jesus' working in our lives, showing His salvation to those who are lost. And maybe you're here today and, in, and you are in a desperate state. Maybe, that you have, maybe you have not yet trusted in Christ for forgiveness of sins, that you have not embraced Him as Lord and Savior of your life. Or maybe you're a Christian here that has grown cold and forsaken your first love. And that you're no longer desperate. You're an austere Christian who's got everything in place that you're unwilling to humble yourself before Him. The only answer is repentance and returning to your first love. But let's take a few moments and some, do some business with God that if you have not invited Christ into your life, it's as simple as saying this, Lord, save me. That's it. Believing in the Lord Jesus and He will save you. Repent of your sins. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and embrace Him. And He will save you. He will transform your life. And if you're a Christian who's backslidden, and you know you're desperate, you know you've made some horrible choices, even though you, sh- you should have known better, God is still there in the midst, of you, midst for you, even in the worst moment. He's still there to offer forgiveness and grace when you come to Him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come into Your presence right now, knowing that You are God, that You are the miracle worker, but Lord, You're also the sin forgiver. And Lord, though You did the miraculous in healing the leper and making them clean and making the paralytic walk. Lord, we know that you are in the business of doing even more than that. And that's forgiving our sins. Lord, we know that your son gave his life so that we might have life. We know that he enables us to be cleansed from our sin, that he changes us and makes us into a new creation. Lord, if there's someone here today that has not yet trusted in you as Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that they might bow that knee, that they might humble themselves before you. They might come in repentance and faith, confessing their sins, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me, and you will save because you are the willing Savior, the Savior who desires our best 
desires good in our life. And Lord, your, your understanding, your thoughts, your ways are beyond our capacity to fully understand or comprehend. But we come to you in faith, knowing that when we come to you in faith, you will by no means cast out. And Lord, if there's someone here today, a believer that has gone a wayward way, that has turned their back on you and indulged in all kinds of manner of sins, and yet they are still struggling within themselves. There's a war going on in their soul. Lord, I pray that you convict them of their sin right now, that they might see their need of a Savior, that they're only inviting your judgment upon their life, and maybe even their death. Lord, we know that you do not delight in the death of the wicked, but you desire us to come to repentance, coming to you. So Lord, please renew our hearts cleanse us from our sins, and use us as a church to proclaim the greatest news the universe has ever heard, that God came to save sinners, of which we are all one. Lord, may your grace be exhibited upon us. May your spirit be evident here. May may he continue to convict hearts and minds, and may he bring us all to the glorious knowledge of who you are in a great and magnificent way that it might overflow from our hearts so that other people might see you and us and be drawn to the Savior in a very powerful and tangible way. We pray your blessing on each individual here and on us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.